Father, we just give you thanks. We give you thanks that we are redeemed. We give you thanks that you're alive. We give you thanks that you're on the throne. And we give you thanks that no matter how far we run from you, that you are always pursuing us. Lord, as we enter this Lenten season, will you reform our hearts on you? Will you reshape our loves after you and after one another? It's all from you and it's all for you, Jesus. We direct our hearts to you. It's in your name we pray, amen. So, mirrors. As you heard me just say, mirrors is corresponding to a season in the church calendar called Lent. Now I know Lent might have a mixed reaction in the room. Some of you here who are from church traditions like Catholicism or Anglicanism or Episcopalianism, you practiced Lent growing up, you observed Lent. Some of you from the freer church traditions like Baptist, uh, perhaps Methodist, perhaps Pentecostalism, you, you might not be aware of Lent. And some of y'all who are new to church or haven't been in a long time, you're like, I have no idea what this word means. What did you lend me? Did you lend me something? <laughs> Lent is a season in the church calendar that is the 40 days leading up to the Passion events. And the Passion events meaning Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Um, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It's the 40 days leading up to the Passion events and it corresponds to the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Now it's a very old practice. The earliest reference we get to a season of preparation comes from a guy named Irenaeus, Irenaeus of Lyon. And he lived in between 130 and 200 AD. He was very close to the time of Jesus. And we have a passing, a passing reference uh, from Irenaeus that says that there was a period of fasting and preparation for the first church so as to prepare themselves for the resurrection of Jesus. But in fact, it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea, which we have Lent codified as a practice, where the Council of Nicaea, where all the church leaders decided that this period of 40 days leading up to Good Friday and Easter Sunday was hugely important and significant for Christians. And the reason why they decided that, and that's kind of what we want to talk about today, of, of why did they decide that this was an important practice for Christians? And if I could boil down the season of Lent, this period of 40 days, there's really one idea behind it, and it is this. Repentance from idolatry. Lent is after repentance from idolatry. And in that, in that idea of repentance, there are four characteristics, four kind of steps. First, we name the things our hearts go after. We name our hearts idols. Second, we confess them. Now that might seem like an obvious step, but it's not as obvious you would imagine. For any of us who have struggled with addictions, denial is a real thing. If there's a way that we can get around something, if there's a way that we can apologize without actually apologizing, we will. So we name the things that our hearts are going after, we confess those things, then we fast from them. And that basically means to go without them, to forego them. We fast from them, but it's not simply that we fast, that we go without, but we actually refill ourselves with kingdom practices. So we exchange these, these idols 
with other practices of the kingdom. Name, confess, fast, and exchange, refill. And that whole process, that fourfold process is called repentance. And what I want to do today is say why. What I want to do today is answer the question of why we need Lent. Now here's the first thing I would say. The first reason why we have a need for the season of Lent, for this repentance of idolatry, is quite simply, humans are worshiping creatures. Humans are designed to worship. The Greek word for worship is proskuneo, which is a compound word. Uh, It comes from the preposition pros, which means to or toward or to turn my face to something, to set my face. And kuon, which means to kiss, which I really like. And it actually has the connotation kuon, um, like a dog licking their master's hand. So to worship is quite literally to turn my kisses towards someone or something. Now that's all the way of saying that, that humans, I'm pull out a, a fancy seminary word on you, are teleological creatures. Humans are designed to have a telos. Telos is a Greek word that means a goal. And, and wouldn't that be true? Like how many of us have ever thought, God, what is my purpose? Show of hands. Right at every hand, if you're, if you're being honest, every hand is up in the room. We are always asking that question, what is my purpose? What are we asking? We're asking, what is my telos? What is my goal? What should I be worshiping? Because humans, as a, as a machine, we are designed to worship something. We're designed to go after something. And as Christians, the most succinct explanation of this comes from a guy named St. Augustine who lived in the third and fourth century, and he put it this way. He said, you made us for yourself, O God. You made us for yourself. God, you made humans for yourself. And our hearts will be restless until they find their rest in you. Augustine and the Christians, the Christian story, in essence are saying that humans are designed to worship something. In our nature, we're looking for a purpose. But actually, we will fail, we will be restless, we will be without peace, we will constantly be asking, what is my purpose, until we come to terms with the reality that we were made to worship God. That God made us to kiss his hand. But that doesn't come easy. That doesn't come easy. See, we're designed to worship God, but our hearts don't find that natural because our hearts are infected with this Christian word that we call sin. Sin looks to worship self. Sin looks to turn our kisses toward other things and ultimately toward ourselves rather than God. We need the season of Lent because Lent reminds us of our fundamental nature as sinners. One of the prophets of Israel, Jeremiah, he says this, he goes, the heart is devious above all else. It is perverse. Who can understand it? And for Christians in the room, we just sang about it and we know it's true and come thou fount. We say we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That there's something, we know we're designed to worship God, but there's something inside of us that really rebels against that idea. I dare say that even when I brought forth the image of worship being uh, like a dog licking the master's hand, you might have recoiled a little bit. When I read it, I did. 
Why? What's wrong? If, if we are not our own creators, if God created us to enjoy him, what's wrong with that idea of being second? See, the doctrine of sin, I know it's, it's uh, gathered some baggage throughout the year, but it's actually not that bad. That, or, huh, well, I should say, hold on, don't quote me there, no tweets. <laughs> the doctrine of sin is sen- essentially a virus that we contracted in our hearts when we stepped outside of our relationship with God. It comes from the Greek word hamartano, which simply means to fall short. To sin is to fall short. Now again, if humans are creatures designed with a telos, we're designed to have a purpose, we're designed to have a goal, and that goal is to turn our kisses and our affections to God, then to be A sinner is simply to fall short of that goal. To be enslaved to sin is to turn our kisses into so many different ways other than God. To return to that metaphor of the dog, it's almost like we come out of the womb as a wild dog. Our hearts in themselves from a young age are seeking to turn our kisses to everything other than the one that made it. So money or fame or family or work or career or traveling. And notice, some of these things aren't bad things. They just aren't made to be the focus of our life's energy, our life's purpose. And Lent, this season, the church said, is important because it reminds us of our fundamental nature as sinners. I know that sounds kind of uh, to our ears, but it's true. As Christians, there's incredible freedom in that statement that I, first and foremost, am a sinner. I, first and foremost, am one who falls short of what I was created to do, which is to turn my kisses to God. My boy, Stanley Hauerwas, who I love to death, he puts it this way. He says, we must be trained to see ourselves as sinners, for it is not self-evident. Indeed, our sin is so fundamental. Our falling short is so fundamental that we must be taught to recognize it because we cannot perceive its radical nature so long as we remain formed by it. We are sinful because we deceive ourselves about the nature of reality. What's he saying? He's kind of saying uh, something that C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis was talking about um, when you're asleep, right? Do you have any idea of the concept of sleep? No. Do you have any idea of the concept of being awake, consciousness? No. You're oblivious to both of those. Now, when you're awake, you're aware of both of them, right? It makes sense. Someone who's really falling short, who's really riddled by sin, thinks, oh, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm okay. The Christian story, the more we become aware of how deep the sin goes, how deeply broken we are, how deeply unable we are to worship God as he deserves, it's like we're waking up from sleep. We're aware of just how broken we are, but we're also aware of how great God is. We're sobering up, so to speak. Lent is the season that sobers us up. And every year we're reminded about our fundamental nature as those who fall short. Now, some of you in here, and as Michelle said, the first pillar of Hope Brooklyn, (coughs) excuse me, is that we are crowds and disciples. And what we mean by that is, no matter where you are on the spiritual spectrum, No matter what you think about Jesus or Christianity, there's room for you here. There's room at the table. 
We need your voice. We want your friendship. And you don't have to put on any sort of airs to, um, yeah, you don't have to put on any airs here. You are welcome just as you are. And some of you here who aren't Christians might be thinking, all right, this is, this is great, but this is a Christian understanding that humans are worshiping creatures. Ah, not so fast. Because my boy, I have a lot of boys, I guess, but my boy, <laughs> David Foster Wallace, who's like the guru of the postmodern secularism, he also says the same thing. And with a couple of tweaks, he's pretty much using Paul's language throughout all the New Testament. He gave a talk to, uh, to Kenyon College in 2005, a commencement address. And this is how he ends his talk to Kenyon. He says this. He goes, here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviolable set of ethical principles, the compelling reason is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, if they're what your heart is loving after, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, they are default settings. Christians would call it sin. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. What's he saying? He's saying what our title mirrors is after, that whatever you look at, whatever you turn your worship to, that's what you're gonna reflect. That's what you're gonna become. Now you might be here and you're saying, well, I don't, I don't worship idols, like idolatry, I don't worship any of those things. John Rockefeller was once asked, how much money will make you happy? And his answer was one more dollar. It's the human tendency. We need Lent because the world is like an ocean that's constantly pulling us off our mark where our stuff is on the beach. Because our hearts are constantly pulling us off that mark. And every year we come back and we sort of recenter ourselves and we name and we confess all the ways that our hearts want to worship ourselves rather than God. The way our hearts want to turn our affections toward things rather than the creator. Now, there's another reason why we need the season of Lent. One is because we're worshiping creatures. We're designed to turn our kisses towards something, but there's another. And the second is this, because we are children of the enlightenment. I know I'm developing a reputation of someone who's always attacking the enlightenment, and I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. We are children of the enlightenment. In the West here, we are a product of a, of a season and Western thought called the enlightenment. And the enlightenment succinctly did this. The enlightenment believed that rational thought could lead to human improvement. 
The ability to reason was the most significant and valuable human capacity. It could help humans break free from ignorance and irrationality, and learning to think reasonably could teach humans to act reasonably as well. The Enlightenment simply said that what it meant to be human was to be a thinker, and that if we could change our thoughts, if we could think reasonably, then that would lead to us acting reasonably. But I don't think that's true, and here's why. Show of hands, anyone ever struggled with addictions? Every hand should be in the air. We all do that. I can't tell you as a high schooler how many sermons I heard that I should stop looking at porn. And intellectually, I was convinced. Like, they showed me the science. They showed how it was affecting my brain. They showed me what it would do to my relationships. I already hated it. Like, everything they said intellectually, I was bought in. And that was on Sunday morning. You can fill in the gaps what happened by Sunday evening. Anyone else in the room like that, right? I know y'all aren't changed by these sermons every Sunday. Why? Why is that the case? I don't take it personal, don't worry. Could it be, perhaps, that the human is not primarily governed by our thoughts, but by our loves? That the human machine is not propelled by what it knows, but what its heart loves. Or as James K. Smith says, it's not that I know in order to love. If it was, then these sermons would be producing a whole different type of people. But rather, I love in order to know. To return to St. Augustine, when he became a Christian, he was a, he was a womanizer, in fact, and he wrote a book called Confessions. It was an autobiography. And in it, he talks about his struggling um, with womanizing. And he, he has this memorable phrase where he goes, I realized that for years my lips were praying, oh Lord, give me chastity. But my heart was saying, just don't do it yet. Anyone else in here like that? We have a vision of what we want. And it's like, oh Lord, I, why can't I be like that? Why can't I not worry as much? Why can't I be more truthful? Why can't I break this habit? But maybe our hearts aren't echoing what our heads already know. See, we have a vision of what human flourishing, what our telos should be. Why can't we achieve that vision? Well, what if it's because our knowledge hasn't translated into our loves yet? And what we love is our fundamental orientation to the world, that humans fundamentally are worshiping creatures. We are designed to turn our affection somewhere. Well, if that's all the case, and if humans will worship, that is, we will turn our kisses towards something, and we know we're not living the type of life we desire or that God wants for us, then we might not be worshiping what we think we're worshiping. Right? If you're a Christian in here, you know God tells us to not be people of anxiety. How's that going for us? Why? We have the knowledge, we have all the proofs, it makes sense. Well, maybe it's because a human is not primarily governed by what it knows, but by what it loves. Isaiah says later on in his, in his, uh, his prophecy, he goes, these people, talking to Israel, these people draw near with their mouths and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me and their worship of me is a human commandment that they have been taught. That Israel, and just so you know, 
us. Sometimes we love the commandment more than God because underneath the commandment is human approval. Underneath human approval is self, worshiping of self, which is sin. So then maybe discipleship is not a matter of acquiring more information. Maybe discipleship is reforming how we live. And how we live shows us what we love. And whatever we love, we worship. And whatever we worship, we reflect. Now, if this is all true, then what does this have to do with Lent? Lent, friends, is the season that reforms our loves. As the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't take it on someone else's knowledge. Don't know that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good and happy are those who take refuge in him. If humans are not driven by knowledge, but by our loves, and our loves are revealed by what we do, then love is a habit, right? And I love Stanley Hauerwas's quote on marriage. He goes, Christians don't get married because they fall in love. Christians get married to learn what love is. Marriage is the context by which Christians get to discover love, because love is a habit. Love is not an emotional feeling. Love is choosing again and again to engage in practices and ways of life that are geared toward a telos, that are geared toward a purpose. Or as Jeff Dyer says, your deepest desire is the one manifested by your daily life and habits. Now this is all true, right? Example, Facebook. We got any Facebook users in the room? Yeah, anyone wanna get off Facebook? I definitely do. Why don't I? I know that I need to spend less time on Facebook. I know that there's a psychological disorder called FOMO happening. And I know it's affecting me. Why can't I translate that knowledge into spending less time? Because I'm totally resolved on Monday that I'm gonna do it. And by Thursday, I've spent way too much time on Facebook. Could it be that because my, my heart loves the taste of Facebook. My heart loves, I've acquired these habits that feed on Facebook such that I don't know how to reorient habits toward something else. Or getting healthy. We know we need to exercise. Like science shows that eating right and sleeping regular rhythms is good for our bodies. But those first few weeks that we're trying to reacquire new habits, Kale sucks. <laughs> Why? Because I've been eating other things. I've been tasting other things for so long that I haven't acquired a love of kale yet. I might never. We'll figure out an alternative. See, here's the thing, guys. If love is a, if love is a habit, then there is a cycle to reform our loves, and it goes like this. First, we taste it. Then we desire it. Then we see it everywhere, and then we love it. If you wanna stop looking at Facebook, you can't just know something and say stop, which is why in the process of repentance, it's not just fasting from those idols, it's refilling ourselves with something else. So if you wanna stop looking at Facebook, 
You need to taste a better alternative. If you wanna stop looking at Facebook, start going on walks. And at first, that's gonna be hard. You're gonna be taking walks and pulling out your phone and being like, put it back in there. It's hard because my heart has acquired habits of looking at Facebook, but you have, to, uh, you have to taste something else. At first, your heart needs to taste something else, but do that enough times. Go on enough walks, and you'll find you'll start enjoying it. You actually look forward to it. You'll desire it a little bit. And when you desire it, you'll see the opportunity for walks everywhere. You won't see the opportunity for going on Facebook. You'll see, oh, I can't wait. Oh, it's a beautiful day. I want to go on a walk. So if you taste it enough and then you desire it and then you see it everywhere, then you've learned to love it. You've changed your habits. Why are you a Christian if you are in here today? You're a Christian because at some point you tasted Jesus. Maybe it was a, a moment way back in the day, but at some point you had an experience with the gospel and you said, that is the greatest flavor of life I've ever tasted. Whatever that is, I want more of it. You tasted his vision of the good life for human flourishing. You tasted what it's like to be a people who are free of anxiety, who are free of fear, who are peacemakers, people who are gracious and forgiving and merciful. What it's like to be a truthful speaker and to be a servant. You tasted it and you're like, this is the best telos. This is what I was created for. This makes me come fully alive. But because of sin, because of our falling short, we're constantly led away. These habits don't form easy. As David Foster Wallace says, that the other habits, tasting other things than God, our default settings. And so in Lent, in the season of Lent, we fast from those things that we normally feed upon and we refill ourselves with the kingdom. The church word for that is liturgy. And I know, again, going back to the idea of Lent, some of y'all might have heard this word, some of you maybe not. Liturgy, a liturgy is a love-shaping practice that forms our habits. It comes from the Greek liturgos, which simply means a public work. It's something we do in public. A liturgy is a practice that shapes our loves. And before you think that liturgy is just reserved to the church, quite simply, everything we do on a daily basis is a liturgy. They're cultural liturgies. They're rival habits that teach us to love other things, to worship self other than God. Checking Facebook, I'm returning to that one. That's a liturgy. It shapes our love toward that red notification that says we're important. Looking at porn, that's a liturgy. It shapes our loves to say that we can have non-risky, non-vulnerable relationship where we'll never be rejected. That's a liturgy. Working 12 hours a day, that's a liturgy. It's a public work. To engage in that shapes our loves toward the accolades and the conquest that comes with progressing in my career. See, we taste these liturgies enough. We engage in these liturgies. We taste these visions of the good life enough. We learn to desire it, and then we see it everywhere, and then we learn to love it, and we're worshiping it. And when we worship it, we reflect it. See, in Lent, we recall ourselves to the kingdom that Jesus offers. 
We tasted Jesus' vision of the good life. And now we return to those formative practices, those liturgies that reshape our loves onto God. And so kingdom liturgies that are offered up to the church are liturgies like confession to one another. Not isolation, but opening ourselves up to one another. Prayer, praying with one another, fasting, taking to the Lord's Supper. This isn't something we do haphazardly every week. We do this because it forms our loves. It's a practice that shapes us. The Sabbath, serving one another, forgiveness. These liturgies are all embodied formative practices that shape our hearts to taste God's vision of human flourishing. And if we taste it enough, we learn to desire it. And when we desire it, we start to see it everywhere. And when we see it everywhere, we love it. Because humans are mirrors. We reflect whatever we worship. That's what this series is all about. And so what we're gonna do over the next couple weeks is we're gonna present an idol. We're gonna present something that is forming our loves in this world and, in spe- and specifically in New York City other than God. And we're gonna name it. We're gonna name that idol. We're gonna confess of it. And then we're gonna fast from it together. And while we're fasting from it, we're gonna practice kingdom liturgies as a community. And we actually developed a resource. I'm gonna put up a slide up there. Um, We developed a resource called Lent Devotions. And we're gonna release these uh, in the MailChimp this week. They're also already online. And it's it's one devotion per week to help guide us as a community during this Lenten season. It's gonna start with a scripture a reflection on that scripture. And and just so you know, the reflection is gonna be based on the sermon for the previous Sunday. So whatever the sermon was on the Sunday, that week is gonna be focusing on that idol. Um, So we'll reflect on it, we'll have a prayer, and then we'll have kingdom liturgy. So we'll have um, tangible, tactile steps that we can take as a community together to not only fast from that idol, but to refill ourselves with the vision of the good life that God offers us. I encourage you to do it with a friend, to do it with someone you love, um, or someone that you can tolerate. (laughs) But do it with a partner that can hold you accountable in this. And it'll be difficult at first. Make no mistake, for anyone who's tried to get into shape, right, those first couple weeks are terrible because we've developed our loves toward a way of life that is not this. But then you start getting into the habit and then you enjoy that morning after sore and then you enjoy kale, so I hear. (laughs) Before you know it, you've acquired different loves. So that's what this season is about. I encourage you to join us in it. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. We know that is true. And if there are people in here who don't know that is true, will you reveal that to them? Will they be able to taste you, taste how good you are, realize that you are worth going after? And Father, as we enter this Lenten season as Hope Brooklyn, will you give us courage to really come face to face with our idols? Will you give us courage 
to name those ways of life, to name those practices that we're engaging in that do not shape our loves toward you, that shape our loves toward ourselves. Would you give us courage to not only name them, but to confess them, to quite simply say, forgive us, Lord. We are sinners. And would you give us courage to enter into practices of fasting from these things, from these idols, which do not seek to free us, but will only destroy us if we focus our hearts on them. And not only to fast, but to fill ourselves with your kingdom, Lord, with the practices that you've offered the church, your community, that shapes our loves to you and to one another. We know we can't do it ourselves, but will you pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and empower us to step into this season that we may sober up, that we may sober up and become so blindingly aware of how great you are so that when it comes time to mourn your death, Jesus, on Good Friday and to shout and exultation on Easter Sunday. We would know that it has nothing to do with us and it has everything to do with who you are. And we just want to walk in your paths and seek after your truth. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.